Hello and welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. If you were expecting the melodious voice of uh, Julie Keel, she's on vacation this week. But uh, you do have uh, me, Mike McPeak, and Jeff Sire. How are you Hello. doing, Jeff? Um, yeah, this week we're going to talk about Moat in God's Eye. And I'll read the short synopsis of it here uh, so people understand what we're talking about. Molten God's Eye is a science fiction novel by American writers Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, first published in 1974. The story is set in the distant future of Pornell's uh, co-dominium universe and charts the first contact between humanity and alien species. The title of the novel is a wordplay from Luke uh, uh, 6, uh, verses 41 through 42, and Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Uh, Molten God's Eye was nominated for the Hugo Nebula and Locus Awards in 1975. Robert A. Robert A. Heinlein, who gave the authors ex, uh, extensive advice on the novel, blurbed the story as possibly the finest science fiction novel I have ever read. So, uh, basically, this story starts off in um, the earth has expanded to other planets and they're in the middle of a revolution the first empire has fallen and the uh, how, how far in the future is it it's like 400 years or something like that uh it is um or a thousand i can't remember it's, it's it was a ways into the future yeah um i've got all these notes oh here. ad thirty seventeen. okay yeah so about a, about a thousand years yeah there we go yeah and uh yeah so we're the the we have expanded out to other planets in the middle of a, a civil war when suddenly this probe shows up from what uh, seems to be another uh, outside the galaxy and they're trying to figure out what is going on so they intercept the probe and inside they find a dead alien with uh, very strange physique two arms two small arms on one side and one large arm on the other side and uh, you know just really doesn't resemble a uh, anything human so they uh, chart where it came from, and they figured it came from this planet that they call the Moat in God's Eye, which is just a sm- uh, it circles a red giant uh, in front of a galaxy, uh, uh, in front of a nebula, which kind of gives it the appearance of having a small dot in uh, the eye of a, you know the strain of a figure there. So that's why they call it the Moat in God's Eye. This is. This is a weird uh, – well, I guess it's not a weird – it's probably the first thing that we've done on this podcast that I, I think would be hard science fiction. Like soft science fiction – these are like kind of my personal definitions, but soft science fiction would focus on uh, the fiction side of it. We're using science fiction as a format to tell a social story like Star Trek or uh, – you know, we're – or uh, or even Star Wars, we're using the backdrop of this environment to tell a story about, uh, you know, like a coming-of-age story and a, you know, redemption of the father in, you know, Star Wars or, or whatever the story might be. Whereas this is on the other side. This is really focused on the science end of, of things. And I think the, the authors tried as best as they could for the, you know, the science at the time to make this... Uh, 
you know, if, uh, you know, it plausible. Maybe it isn't real at the time, but at least plausible. So it, uh, it, it works within, you know, the kind of the realms of known facts are pretty close to it. You gotta expand things a little bit to make the story, but, you know, they tried to make it reasonably plausible. Yeah. Well, like in most science fiction, you know, we run into, uh, the intelligent, you know, uh, races that we run into are bipedal like it's you know star wars and star trek they're all bipedal and uh you know when we look at you know look at our own planet like how many bipedal things are there we're like we're essentially the only thing that uh spends all of their time walking erect with on two legs with two arms so this is one of those things where like a, you know they, they they have an asymmetrical alien that doesn't even have like uh you know, uh, the same number of arms on opposite sides of the body. Like, it was really just kind of, uh, well, and that's the main one. Then there's, the, like, the, all the subcasts of the different aliens. So it's it's almost more like looking at, at ants and say, okay, well, if they evolve to be the dominant species, they're going to have a cast structure. They're going to have dedicated, you know, creatures to do different jobs. And, yeah, it's very different from a lot of the other science fiction that we've talked about so far. Yeah, and you know the the tech part of it. Um, why don't we tackle the uh, the Earth tech first? Because that's a little easier to explain. Because once you get into the Modi side of things, uh, you kind of have to turn everything on its head. Uh, you know, as opposed to what we're used to. But right. uh, the uh, the Earth uh, has what uh, a, a Langston field, or basically what uh, you know a p- person would think of as a force field, which can surround the ship and basically it absorbs energy and dissipates it uh and that's how it uh you, that's how it protects the ship uh and that'll come into play a little later on when they go to the Modi planet the Langston field is the only thing that will allow them to uh get to that point because the other tech that they have is the Alderson drive which you know we might as well invoke a Star Trek here so people have their common point of reference as to what we're talking about Star Trek had the warp drive which they could just kick it in go to light speed and travel the Alderson drive in this story isn't quite that uh, easy you have to have what they call Alderson points think of it as kind of like an interstate highway system through the galaxy you have these certain main thoroughfares that'll get you close to where you want to go and then the rest of the way you have to go at uh, you know impulse power or whatever they called it in there um, sublight speeds anyway to get to these other points so you take the main thoroughfare to where you're going jump off and then travel the rest of the distance at normal speed and those are the those are the crazy eddy points right yeah as the mm-hmm. uh, the uh, modis call them and so the uh alderson point to get to this other galaxy actually ends inside the uh, uh, aurora or the expanding gas cloud of this red giant that's there and so that is what's keeping the Modis from coming to our system is because they don't have the uh, the Langston field to protect their ship. And so they uh, their ship would uh, basically burn up and uh, trying to enter the Alderson point there. So that's what's keeping them from coming this direction. But since we uh, the Earth people do have the Langston field, that protects them uh, going into the star and being able to get out and go on. Um, and then I guess the last point of the uh, the Earth tech that I wanted to talk about, which kind of, it's how I got drawn into this story. I was listening to uh, um, 
this uh, this week in tech, and Jerry, Jerry Pornell was on there, and they were talking about it. And this book is one of the – they made a lot of references to what they called pocket computers, which is now our uh, our cell phones, basically, the little computer that you could pull out of your pocket. You could uh, draw notes, uh, uh, draw things on it, make notes, uh, communicate with people. And so, you know, this was back in 1974, so they made a fairly accurate prediction of things that we would be using today. Yeah. And that that was even before personal computers, right? So that was a pretty substantial kind of uh, prediction. <laughs> well, yeah, because uh, seventy four. I don't even think the first Heath kit was built in. You know, that's the closest, probably the first, I believe, you know, home type computer, and that was probably like seventy six, seventy seven, yeah. maybe. And that was by no means anything that you could light up a few lights, and if you knew a little program, you could make it. You know, do something but not very much so it was kind of a uh, you know kind of a, a leap forward in thinking but you know they did again you know they kind of tried to keep it to what was plausible and it has turned out to be fairly accurate yeah um well then like i say moving to the modis now um yeah you'd mentioned that they have a caste system you know, as uh, on Earth here, we have people who you know specialize in things, but they can do other things. You, like you may have a doctor, but he could also go out and you know he might be smart enough to work on his car, or uh, you know he could carry his own luggage or yeah. this kind but of the, thing. The Modis are almost more like dogs; like they are their their bodies are specialized to the tasks that they are performing right yeah i mean yeah they they have evolved to that point where you have certain specific tasks doing certain specific jobs so you have like the masters which are kind of provide the ruling uh, the governing uh part of their society to kind of keep things in check um and then you have engineers are the ones who build things and their planet um through years of just uh, constant growth, they have exhausted all their natural resources. So they've gotten to the point where they recycle things. At different right. parts in the book here, they'll talk about how they, uh, the engineers and their um, uh, helpers called uh, watchmakers, which are just basically dumb little creatures all they know is build and improve and uh, they're very not they have very little in uh, actual intelligence just a lot of specific skill and they yeah. will take uh, they will come across things and they will just take it and mold it and reshape it uh, into the things that they want there is no idea of uh, mass manufacturing or mass production on this planet everything is custom made yeah. even to the point of custom made that a, a spaceship may be custom made to the person driving it size fit and everything and they modify stuff on the fly i know there's a, a point at which uh, i think somebody one of them is trapped in a ship and they just reconfigure the whole ship to do a completely new task uh just just on the fly right yeah they're you know, kind of, kind of like uh, I was when I was farming. You would take whatever was handy, at, you know, when you needed to fix stuff, and you just got kind of creative. And but I mean, they're to the point where they, uh, you know, the, their their whole body is adapted. That's because they have that's for the, their weird configuration. They have two smaller arms on one side for doing fine work, and then they have uh, a one big arm on the left side, which just kind of functions as a lift uh, hoist you know the muscle that they need so two arms for doing the delicate repair work and another arm for lifting things around yeah 
They have, uh, yeah. No, does it ever say in the book how they came about? Did they speciate into this, or or did they actually specifically set out to create these separate species? I don't know that. I can't recall that that was not uh, necessarily addressed. See, the problem with the Modi society, once you get far enough into the book and they finally figure it out, is um, they have no birth control. Um, so, And the other unique feature of um, the Modis is they, have, they don't have male and female. They can, eat, they can be male for a while. Well, they can be female. Uh, and then they, when they're female, they have to go and reproduce. Otherwise, they will die. And then they will switch back to male uh, for a certain amount of time and until they become female again. They have to go, keep going through this whole um, routine. And since they have no birth control, they have runaway population explosions. And um, like I said, they never spelled out the evolutionary part of all of this. But it has. But they ha- they go through these cycles where they their population just keeps building and building and building, which explains the uh, the deterioration of all their natural resources until the point where. Uh, society. And they, they just go and purge everything, and they just kill off a whole pile of them, right? Yeah, it disintegrates into kind of a civil war. They kill each other off until they go back down to the bare basics again, and then they start over with their population, and they just go through these boom-bust cycles. And then scattered throughout the lesser populated parts of the world, uh, they have these museums stashed around, and uh, it it's kind of a based on an astronomical um, formula to get in there, the idea being that if they can get to the point where they figure out what the formula is for getting in there, they've reached a high enough uh, you know, intelligence so they can get in there and get the, it's kind of their storehouse of knowledge that they need to get into yeah. so that the civilization, the civilization can take off and grow again. It would be almost like if we... Uh we made a repository on the moon of like a whole bunch of stuff to say that, okay, well, if something happens on Earth so we annihilate ourselves back to the Stone Age, if we ever evolved to the point that, uh, you know, got back to the point technologically where we could get to the moon, we would automatically find this thing and that would be all of the store of technology we'd need to continue on beyond that or whatever. Right, with the hopes, you know, not necessarily guaranteed that through intelligence also comes, you know, a certain amount of civilized behavior. Yeah. Hoping that we'd be smart enough to use everything correctly. And there's an indication that this has happened, like, not just once or twice, it's happened like a whole pile of times, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's like I say, and this has become their way of life. And um, one part in the book there, one of the women with... um, uh, uh, of the the earth women with uh has gotten a modi um mediator that belongs just to her and so they're communicating and learning about each other and the modi becomes greatly distressed when she finds out that um there's this thing called birth control and that you know this uh woman is using it um because that would be a, a, a literally a godsend for the Modis if they were able to actually practice population control and be able to, uh, you know, manage your civilization rather than having to go through the roller coaster rides of boom and bust uh, as a way of population control. Right. Um, but you know, they just keep uh, so they uh, 
the Earth people come and you know they're talking to the Modis and they're learning about their civilization. And obviously, the Modis are putting on a good front for all this. Uh, it, it's not till later in the book that they figure out their kind of dirty secret about unbridled population. Uh, but they're you know they're learning about these things. But you know, slowly, some of these things just don't start to you know add up, and they eventually figure out what's going on. And they take two uh, ships to the the system there, but one becomes overrun with uh, these watchmakers, which, uh, you know, is the engineer's assistance. But they're kind of like, well, intelligent rats, basically. They they breed and they grow, and, you know, they're really good at what they do, but um, they just... uh, they were kind of surprised when they first meet the uh, the first encounter with a Modi ship. Um, they make contact, and so the Modi comes over in a spacesuit to talk to them. And he just uh, puts on his spacesuit, opens up the airlock, kicks a bunch of these <laughs> watchmakers out into space to just basically go poof. And they're thinking, what? You know, they don't understand this. Why would you just willingly kick a bunch of your people or your species out into the space lock like that? Wow. Yeah, I remember, that's that's early on in the story, right? Yeah, that's when yeah, yeah, uh, yeah towards the beginning there when they first meet. And like I said, they don't understand this behavior. But eventually, one uh, of I think two of those uh, watchmakers were brought on board the first ship, and they start they got away and they start running amok. And all of a sudden, they start noticing that their systems start to improve, and pretty soon people figure out that if they just leave their uh, technology kind of laying someplace out in the open, the Modis will sneak up there at night and improve it. Uh, but the downside is is that they're also worried about the Modis, because they have figured out that the, the Modis don't have their, their Langston field, and that's the only yeah. thing that's keeping them from coming to Earth, moving in there, and taking over or, you know, the Earth planets. Yeah, that's their big fear, that if, if they develop their own Langston drive and a way to move out of their own like little bottle that they've been trapped in that they're because of the population explosion thing that they would very quickly overrun all of the uh human settled world yeah and um and it's not until the very end when um three of the people who eventually end up getting killed actually meet the warrior uh cast which the rest of them haven't because they've kept them hidden and the warrior cast is you know if they were to ever start growing they would pr- prove to be formidable opponents because they have razor sharp uh armament and uh, very strong and very accurate uh with their weapons so they would prove very hard to fight yeah yeah, and so, you know, like you say, once they meet the civilization, start to get, uh, and they start to find their hidden secrets, get everything figured out, they become, you know, like I say, quite scared. And they've kept the, the second ship isolated in a way, um, and not allow any of the Modis on there. And it gets to the point where the, um, the first ship is so overrun with, uh, the watchmakers, and they've discovered, uh, certain secrets, they have to blow it up before the Modis can get back and report what they have found out about this ship, like I say, for fear of them uh, developing, uh, figuring out the uh, the Langston field. Right. Do they? Do the Modis get the Langston field by the, uh, no. by the end of the uh, book? No, they don't. And, you know, their solution um, to the Modi problem is since that Langston, uh, the... Uh, 
Alderson point is inside the uh, gas envelope of that red giant, and they don't have the Langston drive, they um, they're just going to leave. They've uh, abandoned the, uh, the that system and come back to Earth. They brought three ambassadors with them because they've seen everything. They didn't dare send them back, so they brought them with them. Uh, and are kept under quarantine and watch on Earth there to make sure that they don't, um, you know, start reproducing there. But they brought them back just because they knew too much. But um, they're just going to leave the Modis alone because um, they wouldn't be able to come here. Their ship would get burned up inside the the gas envelope of the Red Giant. And the other thing is, if they do get to the point where they do... uh, develop the Langston field. The thing about jumping in and out of um, d- taking these Alderson jumps as it, wa- uh, as it was, you have a certain amount of motion sickness or space sickness when you come out of there. You're disoriented for a few minutes. Um, you're just, you, you can't function. Your body kind of shuts down. So they have kept a permanent patrol at the end of that Alderson point in our system so that if the Modis ever come through, their orders are to blow them out of space immediately. Annihilate them as soon as they appear. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, you know, the story kind of ends with... um, There's a second story, I believe, but I haven't uh, got around to reading that. Yeah, I've never read it either. So I don't know if they're going to try and work on something for the population control of the Modis because they do prove quite... um, you know, uh, interesting and uh, would be a good addition to the uh, um, the Code uh, code Dominium universe because they can make things on the fly and they are quite useful and versatile. Right. Their technology, they also, uh, they have multiple uses for things. They, uh, like, they don't, like, uh, and the devices that they have, they they do a whole bunch of things at once. They're like, uh, their, their whole technology is, uh, surrounded by two things, not just recycling, but also like uh, uh, like multitasking, or I don't know even how to put it. Like uh, uh, kind of flexibility, probably is the best way to put it. Yeah, Swiss Army knife type. Yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah. yeah, one device. Yeah, so they try to make. Um, they're, they're probably quite efficient in their use, um, and yeah, yeah. Besides the recycling, yeah, things will be multi-purposed. Uh, uh, you know, devices so that it will do more than one thing. Yeah, because here we're kind of specialized. You know, you have a car to drive, and then you get out and you, you know, you walk someplace, and there their car might uh, transform into, you know, uh, they could transform it quickly into something else uh, yeah. to be and used. Like the communication equipment for the car would be built into the engine, and like, yeah, you know, like it's all, like everything is coordinated together, like everything that you would use. Like the, the seats would also be. You know, part of the drive system and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's tightly integrated, and like I say, it fits their um, scarcity of resources mentality. That you know, things have to be. Uh, there's no waste. You have to be useful, and you have to be able to you know repurpose them uh, in a minute. Yeah, which is also kind of goes back to their the way they view the other subcasts of like, okay, well, we don't need these watchmakers or we don't need these. So we just flush them out the airlock and, you know, <laughs> until we need them again, then we'll breed some more or get some from another place. Yeah. It's, yeah, it is kind of, when you put it that way, it's kind of a weird combination of being very conservative and a, a very, uh, a conservative society, but still very disposable because the, 
you know, here uh, we you know tend to uh, conserve life and dispose of material. There they tend to conserve material and dispose of life because they reproduce so fast that life is has doesn't have the same meaning for it there as it does here. Yeah, that's very true. So it's kind of an inverse of you know of our civilization, and I guess you know, maybe that's what they were going for to try and get us to think you know in in different terms and look at our society to maybe un- take a look at ourselves. Well, I heard I read something a while. I have no idea where where I read it, but it was saying that uh, one of the probably biggest challenges with the human race, if we ever do meet another intelligent race, will be to recognize that it's intelligent life that we've come in contact with because we are so geared to like, well, you know, intelligence must be this, you know, or X, Y, and Z. Like it's quite likely that we would run into something that would be so foreign to us that we wouldn't even recognize the, uh, like any sort of intelligence if we, if we saw it. Right. Like uh, look how long it's taken us to realize that, Hey, you know, dolphins are pretty, pretty smart. And, like the whole thing of what does it mean to be a human being? Uh, like, you know, well, they used to say, well, you know, oh, it's only humans that are self-aware. Well, now they're saying, well, no, dolphins are self-aware. They said, well, it's only humans that use tools. Well, certain apes use tools, you know, and then there's uh, shellfish that use or, you know, uh, use tools and stuff like that. So they're like, we're, you know, well, what does separate us? And we can't, we, you know, we've been here like the whole time we've been evolving and we still haven't kind of, you know, put a real solid definition on what separates us from the animals on our own planet. And I think, you know, if we ever do run into something, you know, another intelligent race, it, you know, it might not be initially evident that uh, that they are intelligent. Well, I mean, in the, even looking within our own species, uh, you know, to make this a little more personal here, uh, my oldest son's a high-functioning autistic, and for a number of years, people thought autistic people was retarded because they didn't respond to the way that we communicated with them. But once people started to figure out that they actually learned differently than we did, and you know maybe communicated differently, they started to realize that they are intelligent. It's just that they're not intelligent by the way that we were measuring it. Yeah. And so I think that's the challenge when you know we uh, you know do start to meet other species. Um, how do we determine? We have our definition of intelligence, but that may not be the way that they, theirs has developed for their environment and the way that they live and the way that they need to uh, live to propagate their species. Yeah. Well, and look like when when we look at uh, the way we kind of how we grade ourselves, like a lot of people would say that probably the, the biggest, the greatest achievement of humans would be music, right? Because uh, uh, to, to appreciate that and to integrate sound and all that, it could very well be that, you know, we could come across uh, other intelligent life form that would have, you know, it would just be noise and music would mean absolutely nothing to them. Yeah. The, yeah. It's, they yeah they may value something completely different uh you know maybe right. even something that we haven't thought of uh you know maybe they are um well you know let's go back to um uh star trek for a moment the, the klingons they valued uh things like honor and uh you know warrior traits that we considered barbaric but for their society it worked so 
yeah, we're gonna our yardstick's gonna have to be kind of flexible when it comes to be measuring right. intelligent societies. Right. Yeah, and I think probably the strongest you know point in this book is just how detailed and how uh, well thought out the whole Modi uh, uh, race and caste system is. Like it's it's a really really neat concept. Yeah, and like I said, they have. Uh, that's why I, like I said, get the Earth tech out of the way first because the Modis are. The, yeah, they're very specific because uh, you know I think I went down the list here, but yeah, they got masters, engineers, watchmakers, mediators, warriors, doctors, runners who just run messages back and forth, uh, porters for doing lifting. You got farmers. They even had uh, um, a uh, cast called Meats, which. Uh, they, if the society collapses completely, they would use them as a food source. Uh, so they have very specific uh, jo- uh, jobs within their society. Right. Did, did it say in the book how long it was between the uh, rise and fall of the Modi societies? Um, I think it did. I don't remember exactly. It's probably like thousands of years, I believe. It takes a while for it to build up to that point. Although they did say that um, in order to get that probe to Earth here, they had to use laser technology to uh, propel it here uh, because they had to bypass the... Obviously, they couldn't use the Alderson point. Um, So they got it here by propelling it with lasers to uh, get it to get it here and they said putting that much effort into getting that probe actually caused the society to collapse sooner because i think they had to put more resources into that to make it work and that sped up that uh, particular cycle mm. <laughs> but yeah so they, like i said i uh they do go through their cycles you know it seemed like it was like a thousand years or so but uh you know and they'd even gotten to the point where they had um mine the asteroids around their planet uh for all the minerals that they could find they had basically sucked everything out of their system that they could uh that they could get their hands on wasn't that the first uh the first modi ship that they run into when they get into the system is like somebody who's out on an asteroid Mining the last little bits off of it or something? Yeah, uh, because they come across, I think the first thing they come across is these asteroids, and they're just, uh, they look like Swiss cheese, basically. Right. Uh, with tunnels going through them, and, uh, and, you know, they're wondering what these were. Were they some sort of uh, defense uh mechanism or was it art? Uh, and then, yeah, then they meet the, uh, the Modi space uh, miner. Uh, and that is their first encounter. Mm. <clears throat> Did they say much about the Modi uh, sol- uh, solar sail? You mentioned like they, it has a built-in laser that's firing at the sail to propel it, but they didn't uh, like. Was it was it a physical sail or was it uh, like an electromagnetic uh, like screen? Did they? Well, I think it was a physical scale because uh, in the beginning of the book there, when they go to st- – the ship is plunging towards, um, I think, uh, the, the the sun uh, in that system. And the only way that they could save it is the captain of the uh, uh, battleship, I think, basically 
cuts in front. Uh, I think he flies through the sail, gets in front of the spaceship, opens the hatch door, and basically brings it on board. It wasn't, you know, very subtle, but it's the only way that they could stop. And there was a lot of debate about did you cause the the death of this weird creature and finally i think he gets you know exonerated of that because they figured out that it had already uh died at some point before then uh, but you know there was a lot of was that the way that they needed to do it but it was the only way that they could stop the ship um because the pilot was dead at that point right so yeah it was a physical sale of some sort hmm. i don't know how much more uh tech there is to no, I go over. Yeah, I think we've kind of, you know, mined it. We've kind of, you know, gotten the story for everybody there. You know, and there's more to it than what we've uh, oh, alluded yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, so don't feel like you've gotten spoiled by this because there's a lot of, you know, depth to it. And uh, the characters are, you know, I think fairly uh, interesting, well-defined. And, you know, we hadn't even touched on the, the characters. Yeah, I don't think we've even mentioned uh, anybody by name, <laughs> any of the characters. No. Yeah. So, like I said, it's it's a good read, and there's still more there to uh, for a, for a person to read and still and get a lot out of it, and just you know, kind of immerse yourself in that world and uh, and just kind of get the feel for it. Because, like I said, it's it, they took the time to create a nice, rich environment for this story, and you know, what, uh, once you start reading it, it starts to fall into place. It it gets very interesting. Yeah, and like Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell, I don't know if you've read. I, I know you have, but like, uh, they're they have some of the best science fiction books I've ever read. Like, they're uh, very very good, good writers. Yeah, and I got to go back, and I think back in my teen years, uh, which would have been like in the seventies. In there, I read some books. I think I may have read uh, Lucifer's Hammer, which I think is yeah. Larry Nevins. I've, I've read uh, uh, Lucifer's Hammer and Footfall, both by them, which are again like they're. Absolutely fantastic books. Yeah, and, and I feel like you know, going back now and uh, rereading some of those or finding some of those and just and reading them, just because um, you know that is some well-written science fiction. Yeah. So yeah, I think we've kind of reached the conclusion of this one. So um, next week, uh, Julie will be back, and we will be talking about uh, Trader Tales. Quarter share. Now that was everybody's reading assignment, yeah. <laughs> or you know, in, uh, it's an audio book, and uh, I was able to sub- uh, subscribe to it through Downcast. So I've got the whole book, mm-hmm. and I'm uh, on chapter three, and uh, I'll be reading it, uh, finishing it, you know, this week. So I'll be up to speed on it. Yeah, I went. Uh, I'd listened to it before. This was the one was one that I suggested. I went back and listened to it again, and this week I was hooked as much as I was the first time, and I went back and I've listened to three of his other books as well. I listened to Half Share, Double, uh, what was it? Half Share, Double Share, uh, or no, Half Share, Full Share, Double Share, and I've downloaded Captain Share. That's one I haven't listened to yet. But, uh, yeah, his, it's, uh, it's, you know, sci-fi, uh, but he really focuses on kind of, uh, the whole trading aspect in the future. It's kind of like the idea of like the old clipper ships, only set in uh, set in space. Yeah, and you know, I've just gotten to the point where they're uh, like chapter three. They're doing the character introductions, so um, I'm sure the story will start to build more after that. But even up to that point, it's been fairly you know interesting yeah. seeing some of these characters develop. But so we will uh, be talking about that next week, and um, 
uh, yeah, and, until then, um, I guess we'll do the uh, the outroductions now. So, Jeff, where can you be found? People can follow me on Twitter at uh, at Bronco Sire, and uh, you know, see my musings day to day and uh, all everything that I post up there. And I can be found on uh, Twitter at DSC Chipman, or I have an about.me page, which is about.me slash Mike McPeak. Um, well, that's it for this show, and we'll see you in the future. And...